Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, it's Good New York. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're a socialist radio show and podcast for members of the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 56,000 members nationwide, and NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 5,500-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Bedford-Stuyvesant is one of the most iconic, historically black neighborhoods in the United States. Community School District 16 covers about half of Bed-Stuy, and almost every school in District 16 is losing kids. School Colors is a new podcast covering the history of how today's crisis emerged and the ways parents are now struggling for self-determination. Its host, Mark Winston Griffith and Max Friedman, join us to discuss these pressing issues. But first... I just want to give a shout out to the UAW workers who are striking all across the country. Uh, they started a strike earlier this week after um, you know failed negotiations with General Motors, and now General Motors is um, yet again unleashing brutality on the working class. They, in the midst of this strike, they are pulling health care benefits, and they're really using every weapon they can to undermine uh, these workers, which, I mean, is always particularly heinous, but it's um, really absurd uh, considering the fact that the UAW stood with uh, General Motors 10 years ago when it... Um, was bankrupt and going to uh, completely go out of business unless it uh, had aid from directly from the federal government. Um, but per usual, uh, capital can get all the help that it wants in the United States from the federal government and from state governments, but the working class is left behind. So we just want to really um, give a shout out to those workers who are um, putting their bodies <laughs> on the line um, to fight against a two-tiered wage system and uh, fighting for the temporary workers there. Um, now they're also fighting for their health benefits. And uh, we really hope to see the struggle continue. And if you have a chance, show your solidarity and stand with the uh, – well, I can't uh, recommend you to go do anything, but uh, uh, we, we – you know, uh, the uh, the workers are in there uh, on picket lines, and if you are so inclined, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Website. I'm gonna I'm gonna move on from this uh, this point, <laughs> but uh, there are times uh, when you know almost all strikes are supported by socialists, but there have been times in history where uh, workers have been on picket lines in a way that have stood for uh, white supremacy and for uh, against uh, neighborhood control of schools. And we are talking about one of those exceptions to the rule today. Um, and we're discussing uh, both what's happening now um, in the fight for uh, community control, but also kind of going back in history to the um, Oceanville, Ocean Hill-Brownsville strike. But before we do that, I want to introduce our guests and um, just ask, you know, what are the forces that uh, got both of you involved in organizing in your community? This is Mark, and I'll start by saying that I'm, I'm the executive director of the Brooklyn Movement Center. So our very reason for being on this earth is to, is to organize black folks in particular, but the black community in central Brooklyn, Bedford-Stuyvesant, and Crown Heights. So it's something I've been doing most of, not, if not all of my adult life, and this podcast while is distinct in the sense that it's an act of journalism, is still connected to the Brooklyn Movement Center and its concerns around social justice. And Max, what about you? Um, hi, this is Max. Uh, so my work with the Brooklyn Movement Center started uh, when I was in graduate school for urban design, and I wanted to do some research around the relationship between neighborhood change and schools as a 
uh, self-identified gentrifier. Having lived in Bed-Stuy since 2012, I understood that I was a part of this. And I wanted to stand with an organization that was trying to do something about it. Um, but uh, the rest of, I mean, my, the rest of my organizing life, um, I'm a facilitator with an organization called Theater of the Oppressed NYC. Um, and so I've done a lot of uh, work uh, with folks making plays about their experiences facing discrimination in housing and healthcare. And I've also been uh, a part of an organization called If Not Now, uh, organizing my own community, which is the American Jewish community against the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And so, like, our, I mean, I guess you're saying, like, you identify that you were, you know, part of a process of gentrification. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a developer, but... (laughs) (laughs) You're not the one, you know, making profit off of it, but... Definitely not. uh, (laughs) uh, But, uh, Mark, you're explaining that, like, you are the director of this organization, but, like, what spurred you to want to become the director of the organization in the first place? Uh, Well, it's... You know, uh, my activism has been alive for a long time. I think it started when I was in college and was a part of organizing black students there. Um, We had a big impact on the university and made some dramatic changes and really changed the way the university approaches people and students of color in particular um, and has really institutionalized changes then. So when I was a part of that movement, it showed me the impact that a few really smart people uh, can have as far as organizing people building one voice. I was also involved in electoral politics. You know, I'm going to date myself here. Um, You know, uh, free South Africa movement. Um, And again, was all those things, while everyone else went to medical school or to law school, I came back to streets of central Brooklyn knowing that this was going to be what I did as, as my job, which was to organize. I mean, I would uh, I would love to dive into the history of your college organizing. The Free South Africa movement would be sure. a very fascinating thing to talk about <laughs> on this show. Um, but I guess we will uh, well, we'll not transition to now. Well, I guess we'll even we'll go further back than your time in college. Uh, Ooh, <laughs> way, way back, way back <laughs> uh, to the. Ocean Hill-Brownsville strike in the 60s. Um, so for our viewers or listeners who are not aware, what was the Ocean Hill-Brownsville strike? Um, and like, how did it emerge? Like, What is community control? Why did the parents want it? And why was the UFT opposed at that time? Well, before we do that, I just want, I want to say that uh, School Colors is, uh, is just a little like logistical information about it, <laughs> which is that it's, uh, it's an eight-episode podcast. The trailer is out now, so uh, anywhere you get your podcast, you can listen to that, and episode one premieres on Friday, uh, which is why we're here this week. Um, but, okay, so the question is, Ocean Hill Brownsville, where did it come from? You, you, you go. Okay, yeah. all right. Uh, so schools in New York City have been uh, segregated for a very long time. Um, and in the, I guess we could say starting in the 50s and 60s, there was a real movement to address the, in particularly the overcrowding in schools in majority uh, black and Puerto Rican neighborhoods by integration, um, by busing students or, or allowing students. But they, there was a movement to have a citywide plan for students to be able to go to schools in majority white neighborhoods, and that movement started to fizzle out. There was the largest civil rights demonstration in American history when half a million students stayed home from school on February 3rd, 1964, Um, and it had essentially no impact. Um, And so the movement started, I mean, there were tons of parents around the city who still wanted something to to improve the education for their kids and the momentum started to become around community control instead of integration community control if we can't integrate these schools at least we can control the schools in our own neighborhoods yeah i mean i I would i would distill it down to this in this way that the public education system was failing black students miserably i mean like chronically institutionally and had proven itself just incapable of treating them with full humanity And so there was an experiment um, in a district in Brooklyn that said, okay, this system is failing us. Let's see if we can create something within the district, within the the system, in which we are making decisions for ourselves that is self-determining. Let's see if we can can be better at educating our own children. And that's what um, the Ocean Hill-Brownsville struggle and experiment was all about. And I want to I want to give pro- there were actually three experimental just dist- experimental districts. One was in Ocean Hill and Brownsville. The other the other two were in East Harlem and the end on the Lower East Side. But ultimately, this event is known by the word Ocean Hill Brownsville because Ocean Hill Brownsville is where uh, I don't know if we can say this on the air, but 
No, we can't. Where stuff got real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, yes, yes. I'll leave it at that. So, um, so what was exactly the stuff that got real for our listeners who may not be aware of what happened, like specifically? So, in episode two of School Colors, we go into some detail about the kind of back and forth of like who threw the first stone, whether it was the community or the union, and depending on who you ask, you'll get a very different answer. Um, but the where things really came to a head is that the experiment started in the fall of 1967, um, and by the end of that first year, um, the the community, gov- the community controlled school board in Ocean Hill, Brownsville, decided that there were 19 teachers and supervisors affiliated with the <coughs> UFT that needed to go. Um, whether it was because they were bad teachers or because they were simply sort of politically within the district assisting what the governing board was trying to do is up for debate, but they either transferred or tried to fire these 19 teachers, depending on who you ask. The union said that they were fired without due process. A judge uh, backed that up. Um, And so the union went on strike citywide for a total of 36 days in the fall of 1968. Yeah, I mean, it it was a power struggle at the end of the day. Um, Parents and a local community assumed some power, actually were were granted power and then assumed some, based on this experiment with the full sanctioning, actually, of the city and the DOE at the time. And the union was threatened by that because the, with, through this experiment, the, the, the community took the power to hire and fire. And that was a direct threat to the union. And so they pushed back and they said, you know what, we're not going to let this city function uh, unless you return that power to us. And that's essentially what it was about. Right. I mean, when you have... I mean, when you have, there was 1, 1, 1.1 million students in the city of New York. The schools were closed for 36 school days. The city could not function. All those families had to figure out where to send their kids. Um, and, and I should say the due process for these 19 teachers and supervisors was like the issue was like technically the issue at hand. But when Mark says that the union felt threatened by this, it was a much bigger, it was a much more kind of existential threat in the sense that this was a pilot program. Um, if the city had been divided up into districts that worked the way that Ocean Hill Brownsville did, there would have been could have been as many as sixty or sixty five of them, and the union would have had to renegotiate sixty or sixty five contracts instead of one, which they did not want to do. I think what's so fascinating about this historical moment and why it's so, so necessary to ex- like to explore it. Um, and what it means historically is that you're not having a fight um, between like the forces of capital and labor. You're, it's not um, some element of uh, the ruling class, but it's really this, this working class institution but in, that has been bureaucratized in many ways. And we, can, we could dive into what that means and how clo- like who was actually making the calls on behalf of the union. Was it democratically through the workers or was it the high level um, bureaucrats are more you know entrenched in democratic party state politics and then you also have uh the oppositional force is neighborhood local radical radical democratic control it wasn't about privatization it was about building power within the community to have their own choices about what was happening well, I, I just want to, I mean, the, so the president of the UFT, Albert Shanker, argued at the time, I mean, uh, the, the, the picture that he painted of this for the public was that the community was really, in a sense, having the, pu- the, um, the puppet strings pulled by capital, or at least by the elites, because the city and the Board of Ed and a, a task force that was headed by the head of the Ford Foundation were behind the experiment. They, 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 the Ford Foundation actually paid for the governing board to, to function. Um, the union was able to, to, for a lot of people, to paint this as essentially the sort of like middle, lower middle class of quote-unquote real New Yorkers against a coalition of radicals and elites. Yeah, and what I thought was, when I, in looking back, what's, what's really a tragedy is that this was all going on across the backdrop of civil rights movement and then the black power movement. And by positioning itself in the way that, it, that the UFT did, it put, I mean, although it used rhetoric that said that they were trying to kind of uh, reset the civil rights movement, and they thought that 
this effort was uh, outside of the civil rights movement. But in fact, it was it was smack dab in the middle of it. In fact, if you see the, the documentary Eyes on the Prize, it talks about this in the context of the civil rights movement. And the UFT, you know, not only did it position itself against that, but what we really got away from is the fact that students were being, you know, they were being destroyed in the classroom. And what was really disappointing about all of this is that that somehow never really got directly addressed. That no one was saying these children are really important and we're going to do what's necessary to make sure that they get a great education. Shanker was invested in teachers being treated like professionals and therefore being not told what to do by anybody. Yeah, um, and, and it's just it's a shame that labor rights and civil rights and the rights of these children were in, were in opposition. They should not have been in opposition, but they, they, and, and in the end, they ended up being. And I should say, in the context of this show in particular, you know, you, in talking about socialism, Shanker was a socialist. Um, Albert Shanker was a self-identified socialist. He was an anti-communist socialist of a kind that was very sort of like a thing um, at the time. And in fact, the UFT kind of emerged in the early 60s out of the ashes of a different teachers union that had a lot of communists in it and was uh, also had much more kind of explicitly anti-racist politics. Um, and 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 over the course of his career, Albert Schenker went from being the head of the UFT to being the head of the AFT, the National Teachers Union. His the socialism sort of took a backseat to the anti-communism. Many people say, but well, that uh, <laughs> tended to be a trend for yeah. uh, a lot of people who moved up the uh, bureaucracy yeah. during those years. I think that's is really important to highlight and sense how the you had this uh, the, you know this anti-communist attack on the radicals in the labor movement that um, both purged it of its strong, many of its strongest organizers, many of the labor organizers who were most committed to an anti-racist politics, and also in this process started to um, you know, develop a relationship between uh, you know, high-level staffers in the union and the Democratic Party and this kind of overall Cold War anti-communist and increasingly anti-socialist politics where you're really just bargaining um, and lobbying in Albany. You're not really working to build this sort of rank-and-file power movement. You're, you're not, it's not about really transforming the relations of society. It's about how do we, you know, keep getting our crumbs and making sure that the institution survives. I think, to be clear, as we always are on this show, it's always better for workers to have a union than not. And unions lead to better outcomes for workers. But unions uh, can be of varying degrees in terms of how they're they're internally structured affects what they're ended up fighting for. I think what you were saying before, Mark, about it's a real tragedy that civil rights and labor were pitted against each other in this battle. And ultimately, both sides lost in a certain sense. Most, the, most definitely. I think an opportunity was lost. and if, if For we, generations. Right. And if we were to put it in movement terms, I mean... One, I think that the UFT, you know, we can say a lot of things about the UFT, but I think over the years, there, the, the racial dynamics within the UFT, I guess you could say, have, in, have improved. I mean, I think there's a lot more sort of trust, racially speaking, within the UFT. Um, and I don't know to what extent people operating today in movements have a memory of that. But what I can say is that I think it, it, it has somehow contributed to this distrust that you oftentimes feel between sort of black folks working on a, on a grassroots movement level with this distrust they often have with, with movement, with, sorry, with labor, and this perception that it is oftentimes white-led, or that, that there's just an insensitivity or a, second, or a secondary position of their rights to that of, of workers. And it's, it was a it was a missed opportunity then, and certainly you see those missed opportunities continuing to this day. And I will say one of the ironies about District 16, which is where we're, where we're focused in kind of the present day part of the story in, in the podcast, is that it is the – District 16 has the highest proportion of black teachers in the city, of any district in the city. 
Um, you know, black teachers are it's much better than it was in 1968. But still, you know, in general, across New York City, there's very few compared to the proportion of the population. It, District 16 has the highest and it has the lowest enrollment. Yeah. It is the most under enrolled in the city. So something is right. Something is wrong. <laughs> and l- let me just say this. My father was a U of T member. My uncle was a U of T member. Um, my wife is a U of T member. All parts of my family are U of T members. But it's interesting when you look at the positioning in, during the strike, my father, my uncle were on the opposite side of Albert Shanker, although they were part of the union. They were forced to decide where, where they were going to align themselves politically. And I think it speaks to Shanker's inability to speak to their interests that they ended up going the way that they did. And uh, I should also say that my mom's my mom my mom's family is from Brownsville. My mom's first cousin was a union teacher who cited who, who said, you know, with Shank, I, we 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 had to stand with Shanker. It was a painful thing to keep the kids out of school for that long, but it was the right thing to do. And what's and Mark's uncle and my cousin both. Uh, Mark's uncle crossed the picket lines to try to keep his school open. My cousin was on the picket lines and then in the afternoon opened what he called what they called a freedom school to try to have some place for the kids to go. Um, and then when this was all over, they ended up working in the same school together for 17 years and became close friends. Yeah, and we didn't know that. We didn't know that going into this. I mean, we, we were always looking to sort of infuse this story with our own stories, but it was literally in the middle of all this where I was talking to my uncle and Max was talking to his cousin and they, we were, they were two characters on opposite sides of the strike, but we learned that they not only that they knew each other, um, but they actually got to be very close friends after all of this. So that, I mean, that's instructive as well. It's interesting. We have a lot of UFT connections. I guess my fiance is also a UFT member. <laughs> <laughs> right. And right. I mean, I, I, Mark said it before, and I'll say it again. We are not anti-union. I think there are many different ways to have a union. Um, and that's something that, uh, yeah, that's something we're trying to talk about. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, just want to remind our listeners that this is Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com or sign up for our newsletter to get links to what we talk about on the show. You can do that on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at NYCRPM. Today, we are talking about parent organizing. We've just been discussing the history of the Ocean, um, Ocean Hill-Brownsville strike and kind of the tensions between the UFT within the UFT and also between um, the UFT and the community. And something that's been happening recently, and um, for socialists, we see this as a very exciting development, is the emergence of these uh, teacher strikes over the past uh, six or seven years. There was, uh, starting in Chicago in 2012, you have this um, really uh, incredible development. And I think what's different about what happened in Chicago and also what recently happened in Los Angeles. And I know you guys are more plugged into what's happening here in New York, so we don't have to dive too much into this. But I think it is important to note how the, the, those strikes developed around very different lines than what happened here in the late 60s. That in Chicago, as well as in L.A., and I think this has also been happening in Oakland, and uh, it's a different circumstance when you get into the West Virginia and uh, Oklahoma and Arizona. They're in different material um, and social conditions. But in Chicago and L.A., there has been extensive work um, between the rank-and-file strategy and the parents in the community collaborating together to center um, racial justice issues within um, their organizing campaigns and, in fact, in their demands in the strike. Uh, There was, uh, in L.A., I know that it was very critical for them to uh, make sure that they the lessen the amount of police in the schools. The uh, they were uh, striking against the oversecuritization of schools, the p- school to prison pipeline. And Chicago has been um, the, sh- the Chicago Teachers Union has been very involved in fighting uh, back against the uh, the police academy that is being pushed by the Chicago City Council and the police uh, department there. So. 
how do you see uh, how do you see um, like working together with at least some members within uh, the teachers union or just teachers in general um, alongside parent organizing? Like we just had uh, Gia Lee and Kevin Prozen, who are part of the Moore Caucus, the Reform Movement within the UFT, and. Uh, racial justice issues and the legacy and the current institutions of white supremacy were actually a major focus of our conversation when we had them on the air. And I'd recommend you guys checking that out if uh, you want to. I think it was a, a really great discussion. So is there anything uh, – how, how do we bridge this gap between uh, the community, the schools, and the union? And is there anything that we can draw from uh, those experiences in Chicago and L.A.? Well, I, I think that – the starting point is for people to uh, recognize that there are common interests, right? And right now, I'm not sure if that is the case. I mean, um, with the UFT, I think the UFT has taken a particular approach to building power, and I don't think that that approach has included, to a very large extent, organizing parents and organizing teachers and bringing them uh, together under sort of one umbrella. I mean, I'm not saying it, does, it hasn't happened at all. I'm just saying that that's not really, when you look at their approach, that's not, uh, that's, that's not how it's defined. That's not how they, that's not their starting point. And so I think that, you know, uh, that, whether you're talking about the UFT, whether you're talking about teachers day to day, whether you're talking about people working on the ground floor in, in the community, there's got to be some kind of conversation with them that says, we want to do this, this, and this, and you and I can work together to make that happen. I don't, I'm not saying those conversations are not going on. I just have not heard them. And there is no, there is no real insti- serious institutional support, or I should say, like, it is not institutionalized either among the, the rank and file of teachers or the rank and file of parents, if you can call it the rank and right, file. Right. Um, the, there's not a culture of organizing. There's not a culture of, of popular mobilization. Right. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's an uphill climb. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's important to say that the DOE has made a very, I would say, conscious decision to make sure that that's the case, right? They're not – they don't want – organized parents. They want parents atomized. They want people thinking of themselves as individuals and consumers, and they want them looking out for their own self-interest, but they don't want them, for the most part, to come together to make collective demands on, on, the, on the institution. I mean, they do on a, on a school level, and there's some PTAs that are, you know, encouraged and are doing really well, but particularly among black and low and moderate income parents, there is no incentivizing or, or structuring within the DOE to make that happen. And, and one of the things that the charter movement has been extremely good at is organizing parents. Now, they're organizing, they're very good at organizing parents to come out in support of the charter movement. They're not necessarily organizing parents to come out and to, to, to organize themselves for what they want collectively, but they're very good at, at, at mobilizing them. And I, I had a friend who shall remain nameless, whose job it was to organize parents to come out for these big rallies on behalf of the charter movement. It made her very uncomfortable. Yeah, no, I, I think you make a really good point, Max, because I have met several organizers within the charter school movement, and they see themselves as rank-and-file organizers, right? It's not just, a, it's not just a, a label. They go in there, they see themselves as building relationships, build, building a base, and directing that base towards very strategic goals, within their their organization and you don't see that at all going on within the doe and i i think that really does highlight a critical point i think it is important to mention that oftentimes the charter movement does have certain financial backing that makes rank and file organizing easier um than when you're operating within a a struggle to maintain uh, something as a is decommodified, but I think it is really important that you're mentioning that the the DOE and is and I would say the upper echelon of the Democratic Party in New York State 
is definitely not interested in any sort of um, grassroots mobilization that that is opposed to them maintaining their power. And there are figures within the UFT, particularly the the upper level uh, staffers or bureaucrats, however you want to frame it, who also have their own material interest tied to making sure that there's not a rank and file movement within the UFT. Right. We were we were exploring this um, recently on this last episode that, and also I've just had conversations with like my fiance where like they didn't even make her aware that the elections were happening and that it's it's a struggle for this uh, Moore caucus, which is I think has great plans about expanding public education and community control linked together and wants to draw on these models from LA and Chicago that we can have really radically democratically controlled public institutions um, that there is incentives for people empowered, um, whether that's in the Democratic Party or the upper echelons of the UFT, to maintain a certain status quo. And they have done – I mean you also have to give them credit in a certain sense. New York teachers are paid better than almost any other teachers in the country. And Yes, the- yes and teacher turnover is extremely high. So the pay is pay is not everything. Yeah, no. I'm, I mean, <laughs> it's important. It's important. It's obviously it's very important. But teacher turnover is so high in in for early year teachers that there's there's, there's more going on. Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm just trying to. Yeah. Uh, no, I do give them credit. L- yeah. Lay out the groundwork in the sense where it's like, and obviously when you go to states where there are no or there's either really weak union yeah. representation for teachers or they're basically the unions are not allowed to bargain collectively on their behalf the wages are absolutely terrible and the turnover is bad so i right. just, yes. just want to yeah give a, a full picture of the situation but um i think what's really clear what we're all highlighting here is that the need for rank and file organization on all levels and that there's common interest across the board and that if we identify the real need is building these working class institutions that are rooted in the community that that's where you actually will see that develop in a sense yeah and look i i I, let's recognize that organizing is threatening to institutions right so I, i i get that um but i think what's really interesting uh, about the DOE in particular, and you listen to the words, the nomenclature that they 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 use, organizing will never be found, and so they will use words like engagement, which I think speaks to a certain kind of a relationship, where people where you know people sort of stand on the periphery and they add their voice, but they are never really centered in the decision-making, and I think that's very purposeful. And the conversation about engagement is, is, is frequently centered on, like, uh, you know, the purpose of the function of parent engagement is to get you to be more engaged in your student's education, which is, relies on a kind of image of a disengaged parent that relies on a, a whole set of kind of tropes about the culture of poverty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, I mean, it, it's really a, it, that... that is frequently that's what it's about. It's about help. It's about homework help. Right. It's about bake sales. It's not about power. Yeah. And and look, I have to admit, even my own uncle, who's dear to my heart, who again who I thought was fighting the good fight during Ocean Hill Brownsville. I've had these conversations with him, and when I talk about parent power, parents coming together, he rolls his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> you know. The idea that parents can come together, I mean, I think he thinks of it as this cute little notion that on the ground is not really practical and has, and has not served him in his job when he was a teacher and, and a principal. So I think that, that that runs pretty deep in the culture of, of, of these institutions. And part of that is because after Ocean Hill-Brownsville, there actually was instituted a system of local school boards, and those local school boards were pretty dysfunctional and, and, and really in, mostly in, 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 in a lot of cases didn't really repre- – did they were not a vehicle for popular democracy or democratic control over schools. They looked like that, but they didn't necessarily function that way. Um, and so I think probably I don't I don't know I would have to ask your uncle but I think probably his experience maybe dealing with the local school board was like this right. is <laughs> right right and I and, and I also can understand the defensiveness because public education is under broad attack yeah. as well and that yep. that doesn't mean that you 
can't be critical of the flaws and the problems within the system. But I right. I understand the the approach because there are also large forces out there, like a number of billionaires who are very interested in gearing the school system to their particular interests. So it's right. you're it's always this it's always this complicated conversation where it's you have to defend the institution from the attacks that want to actually undermine in the long term community control and any sort of worker power and parent power to gear the school system more to their particular interests and sometimes actually basically kick people out of school the way certain charters can be designed um but also having understanding that the way that the current public school system operates um, has limitations because it exists, one, in a capitalist society. So there are power structures that have to deal with that. And then there are also institutions that are entrenched in that system that if there are, are actually rank-and-file movements of teachers and parents, it will undermine their power. But uh, just – to transition into specifically um, uh, school sh- district 16, what's happening there right now? Like, what are the primary concerns of parents, and is there organizing going on, and is power being built? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a loaded question. Um, let me just say that the Brooklyn Movement Center, we used to do, or at least we attempted to do some uh, parent organizing a few years ago, and I found that it was one, it was difficult to get the, the resources i.e. money, to do the work. But also, you know, we came into the work, and there were a lot of elbows flying, and I think that a lot of people didn't appreciate our presence there. And so we just backed off. And so what you see now in terms of, you know, we've done a report on the district, we're doing this podcast, that's our way of contributing to it. But day-to-day, we're not just as as involved. So I think the organizing happens, one, within the formal structures, within the, the CEC. I think you have some strong... PTAs. There was a group called the Bedsty Parents Committee um, that was mostly um, middle class and white parents who were newcomers who that were doing some organizing. Um, that is has kind of phased um, phased out. And I think that there are also citywide organizations um, like CEJ, Coalition for um, Educational Justice, that are doing parent organizing on a citywide level and are working with places with folks in District 16 to link them to, to larger struggles. So I think it's, it's happening. Um, I, don't, I, I still don't think that there's a very pronounced organizing culture in District 16. I would say that unless that there is a, a grassroots organization that's doing it, you're not going to find that in a lot of uh, black and brown school districts in general. And I think one of the one of the things we're trying to say in, in making the connection between Ocean Hill Brownsville and the present is that, like I said, in the wake of Ocean Hill Brownsville, these these local school boards were created, and the local school boards were not, yeah, were did were not exactly what they were chalked up to be. Um, but when they were gotten rid of, um, I mean, when when the Bloomberg when Mayor Michael Bloomberg became mayor, he got rid of the system of local school boards, and not only that, really tried to make the the districts as units as as kind of irrelevant, functionally irrelevant as possible, and that happened at the same time as he and, and I mean not just him as a person, but the the city that sort of city government was kind of seeding the ground for gentrification, and so you take away this instrument, this potential instrument of a community power you take away the sense of a community. And so when you look at the under-enrollment of District 16, District 16 is the most under-enrolled in the city. Um, there's, uh, it's, I, be, I think the, the, as a whole, it has less than half of the students that it could in those schools. Um, and, I'm, and part of that is that there's not much identification with this district. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's worth mentioning, if you look at Ocean Hill Brownsville, they had some very important ingredients. One, they had money from the Ford Foundation <laughs> to do this. They had a sanctioning from the DOE. And there was a broad, like, not only recognition that the schools were in crisis, but you had a national movement that was behind it. None of those ingredients exist today. And so, you know, when you're talking about low and moderate income um, parents who are struggling day to day to, you know, to just get food on the table, to work, you know, their two jobs, to educate their children, there's not a lot left you know, for, you know, organizing on some level, I don't want to say it's a luxury, but it takes something to do. 
And when you're beaten down day to day, it's really difficult to, to, to muster up the agency to do that kind of organizing. And I should say we've met more than, more than one PTA president in District 16 who have, are no longer actually able to live in Bed-Stuy and commute to their schools in Bed-Stuy from Staten Island every day. Because the rent is because too the high. rent is too damn high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've um, heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> what I, I came up with that myself just now. <laughs> I think the the point that you're uh, you're both making. Well, the rent is too damn high, <laughs> and I also want to mention in one particular case also that somebody got a Section Eight affordable housing voucher that nobody would take in Bed-Stuy, which is illegal but very common. Uh, that does uh, landlords not following the law is not something I find too surprising. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think like a point that you're both making, and I think Mark started to uh, really dive into about how it's difficult to organize when you are constantly having to like fight to survive, I think is really, really critical and significant to mention. And I think that in itself is not like an accident. Uh, it's been a clear campaign. If, you, if you're going to have to make people work longer hours for lower wages, when rents are going up, it's going to be more difficult for them to organize unless, you know, sometimes people reach a breaking point and then you have particular moments of outburst. But it becomes a lot harder to build institutions and organizations when you're being waged war on by the most powerful forces in society. So it's right. like how we confront that is a very difficult question, but I think it's something that we have to admit is part of the reality. Right. And, and when Barack Obama was elected, you finally had this national sort of conversation around community organizing that didn't exist before because he was an organizer and either you, you know, applauded that or you, you know, poo-pooed it. I think the point is that organizing oftentimes happens, yes, because there's a gra- grassroots um, sort of uprising, but having a paid organizer, that, that helps a whole lot. And that's what we tried to bring to the, the equation, is, was someone whose job day-to-day was to facilitate relationships and conversations with people and to build power among them. And I, and I have to say, there's in so when they got rid of the local school board, they created something called Community Education Council. And the president of the Community Education Council, the CEC, in District 16 is a guy named Naquan McLean. And I give him a ton of credit for putting District 16 back on the map of the DOE, like shoving the district in their face and saying, no, you can't just walk all over us or do whatever the hell you want to do. Naquan doesn't work. He is a full-time plus volunteer as the volunteer president of the CEC. He is able, not because he's wealthy, but because his wife works, and it's a long story. But, uh, yeah, he he's works, I don't, you know, 40, 50 hours a week doing right. this. Right, yeah. and he's a full-time organizer, essentially. Yeah. And he does a damn Unpaid good organizer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, and nothing but, would happen without somebody like that. Right. Part of the reason, as socialists, why we consider <coughs> the union movement to be so important is because it's one way, or some, sometimes the easiest, even though it's not very easy to organize a union, particularly in the current context, to generate money into a mass movement because there are dues structures, you can have paid staffers, and there is a, if the union's particularly organized in a small d democratic manner, you can utilize these resources to build working class power. Uh, But I just want to remind our listeners that this is Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI 99.5 Broadcasting in New York City. We're also streaming on your favorite podcast app. Connect with us after the show. You can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com or sign up for a newsletter to get links to what we talk about on the show. You can do that on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today, we're talking about parent organizing in schools, the kind of struggles that happen with between left institutions, but also how those end up eroding power for the working class in general and the need for teachers and parents and all people who are under the boot of capital in the state to organize together. Um, we have about 10 minutes left in the show. Uh, so at this time, we want to open the phone lines and uh, just please give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, that's 212-209-2877. Um, if you want to ask them a question about their podcast, about what's happening in parent organizing, if you have a story from Ocean Hill Brownsville, if you just want to uh, if 
discuss what's happening in your school. If are you a teacher or your parent, we'd love to hear from you. Um, but so uh, before we get any callers, uh, what like what can people look forward to in this podcast? Like what's uh, what's the upcoming schedule of release? What are the how are you dividing it up in terms of episodes? Um, so episode one is comes out on Friday. Um, the trailer is already out. If you have a smartphone of any kind, uh, you can get a podcast app. If you don't already have one, search for School Colors and you will find it. Uh, it takes three minutes to listen to the trailer and hopefully that'll get you hooked. Um, and then if you subscribe, uh, every episode will download to your phone automatically. Um, episode one comes out on Friday and then we'll be releasing weekly after that. Um, and there's eight episodes in total. Right. And let me just add that I have no idea to the average listener, you know, how exciting race, class, and power in American cities through the, <laughs> through the lens of a school district in, in Brooklyn. I don't know how much that grabs people. <laughs> but I can tell you, and you know, I really can tell you because I was a part of it, that it's just very, very strong storytelling. And the humanity comes out of all these people. And we're, we go in there as journalists. And obviously, we have a point of view. But I think that you can find yourself as a listener in it, and you can find some level of empathy with virtually everyone who's who we feature in in the podcast. I just really encourage people to to tune in. Yeah, and and you know, education policy can be really be forbidding. Um, the, these these institutions are incredibly complicated in a way that you know shuts a lot of people out. But we have tried really hard to. Both like demystify some of that, but also to to focus on characters and story. I mean, they're incredible characters um, with incredible stories to tell all throughout this podcast. Yeah, um, and it's very emotional. I mean, it's a very emotional subject. Yeah, would you say your ultimate goal with this podcast is sort of a to make an entertaining piece of political education? So to take what you are talking about, it's obviously. I mean. If I, I hear that and it really draws me in, but uh, I'm probably not. <laughs> I, I'm not. Like a, I'm not an average. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not normal when it comes to uh, interest and <laughs> things like that. Uh, but I, I would suspect a lot of people listening to the show also are similar if if they're tuning in. Um, but is the hope it's like to you know this lens of political education and kind of how we deal with the unique circumstances of being in America and the intersection between race and class and how that relates to education. Well, I'm sorry. What was the question? Uh, sorry. I, was, I, guess it, <laughs> I guess it turned into more of a statement, but um, like is, is the hope that this is like a, oh, right. a political education, that, right. that this will draw people into the movement and at least, or become more aware of what's happening. Yeah, I, I will say that we started this off really in the context of where we are today, which is gentrification, and knew that there is a very fraught conversation going on between and among people in central Brooklyn around that, and that the schools were a staging ground for a, a lot of this. And so I think our attempt was to kind of, you know, gentrification, everything gets dumped into that, right? And so we tried to strip out the discrete elements of it and give people a chance to speak from their point of view. And yes, there's political education, but it really was an attempt to kind of facilitate and navigate a, 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 con a very unwieldy conversation and make some sense of it. Not just like a top-down, like this is how you should think political education, mm -hmm. but kind of like a, a dialogue right. where this is a process that people are engaging in collectively, that this is a project where you're, you want to tell these stories from all these different people that have been involved both historically in these struggles and also in what's happening right now. Right. I mean, it's facilitated conversation with also historical and policy context as well. Yeah. I mean, dialogue across difference is very difficult and very rare. And so I think we're trying to kind of and sort of curate it within the space of the podcast and hope that it seeds more dialogue out in the world. Yeah, and, and dialogue is, you know, it's, yeah. it's a pretty uh, degraded <laughs> term and it's concept true. these days. And so, um, yeah, I think it inspires, again, a little bit of eye rolling. But we we really believe that there's something we can contribute to this conversation. So, I mean, that's great. Can you uh, just remind everyone how they can get in touch with the podcast? I know you've mentioned briefly already but uh, uh yeah go uh, on any podcast app apple podcast google podcast uh radio public spotify anything like that you can search for school colors and you'll find it there you can also visit our website which is schoolcolorspodcast.com 
All right, great. And uh, I just want to, we have a couple minutes left. So if anyone wants to call in with any questions, remember it's uh, 212-209-2877. Again, that's 212-209-2877. And I, I think what is like so fascinating about like where you just bring up gentrification and there's a way that gentrification can create antagonisms and just terror like bad things happen between the people on the ground who are participating in it like middle class white people go into a neighborhood they call the cops in a situation and it escalates to to violence on the people who have been living there for a long time. People who have been living in a community, uh, like people of color, are forced out and pushed further and further away. Makes it more difficult for them to ask for the jobs, but and like get to work in the morning. Transportation increase. It's it's all these different factors. But there's obviously this like force of like real estate capital operating behind the scenes that can feel invisible at times so it's like i think what you're saying about why dialogue is so important is because it can kind of bring together like it can reveal both the common interest and the common antagonism that people are facing in their lives is is that something that you're hoping to generate through this project yeah i mean i think you you said the the schools are sort of a staging ground for all this stuff i think the schools are, are a staging ground and also sort of a metaphor um in in the sense that like that you find we're finding all these antagonisms among people who have in 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 many ways not in all ways but in many ways common interests under the under the umbrella of this this uh, this superstructure of the the DOE that is some sort of mysterious um, uh, and invested in its own survival um, and in some ways I think the neighborhood is the same way um, you have people with these and with antagonisms who in some senses and not others have common interests under the uh, under the structure of, of capital accumulation that is punishing everybody. Um, yeah, and I, I would just say, Not equally, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, what, what was really interesting, particularly when you apply it to schools, is that there's some things that hold true, right? I mean, there are, there are interests among black people, there are interests among people of a particular class, and then you get to places where all that just gets jumbled and mixed up. And there, there are people who, who you would assume have less interest less in common than they actually that they actually have more in common than they than they realize and so i think that's another thing that i'm hoping people can gain from this that they listen to this and like oh, all right this person who i just assumed was on the other side of the issue from me i actually hear myself there and i can see where our humanity intersects i mean there's a real cliche um when you get into this conversation i've heard so many people different so many people say like oh, parents all want the same thing we all just want a good education for our kids that's not really i mean parents want yes parents want a good education but that means different things to different people i think the trick is like how do, how do we come like how do how do we talk to each other about the different things that we want and negotiate that because yeah. they're not the, the different things that we want are not necessarily mutually exclusive right and and it's really difficult it's some when we have this conversation sometimes we're imposing this kind of conversation around collective and community that many people don't actually practice or think about. They're thinking of themselves as individuals or they're thinking of themselves, them and their children or their families or, you know, maybe five other parent families around them. And so using that model can sometimes not be true to what's actually going on on the ground. And I think you have to, I think that highlights a critical point is that the collective is not just there like abstractly. It's not there without work. It has to be built. And that's built through struggle, through conversation, through institutional building. And that's a challenge and it's not easy. And I would love to continue this conversation. It's been really great. Thank you both (coughs) so much for coming on. I'm really looking forward to the podcast. Thanks. Um, but we have to wrap up. Uh, you've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute on uh, WBAI 99.5 FM. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll uh, talk to you next week.